at the time, I just kept thinking, I'm not good enough. And every time I would struggle, my default setting would be, it's because you failed the test. It's because you shouldn't really be here. It's because you're not good enough. And that's going to be a really big psychological hurdle. We don't like talking about failure, do we? Because failure is construed as a bad thing from Mm -hmm. the start of our lives, from failing a spelling test. And yet it's really good to be resilient. So it's this, this relationship comes hand in hand, one of which we're saying it's bad to fail, but one of which we're saying it's great to be resilient. You can't have everything. Hello and welcome to the Mindset Matters podcast. I'm Dr. Gemma Lee Roberts. Imagine you're in a situation where you find yourself under extreme pressure. A calculated decision needs to be made instantly and the consequences could be catastrophic. How do you feel? Calm? Terrified? Exhilarated even? Well, I'll be the first to answer that. I would be absolutely terrified. In this episode, I'm speaking with the incredible Mandy Hickson, an amazing woman who has spent 30 years working in the Royal Air Force, where she operated in extremely hostile environments, including patrolling the no-fly zone over Iraq. In this episode, Mandy will share her experience of calculated risk-taking, decision-making under extreme pressure, and the critical role of the human in the system. She is a brilliant way of transferring vivid lessons from the cockpit to other life and leadership contexts. Fascinating, right? Well, join us now as we dig into what it was like to be the first woman to fly the Tornado GR4 on the front line, how she coped under such intense circumstances and pressure in war zones, and what she learned from her experiences of imposter syndrome and failure. And if you enjoy this chat, check out the Mindset Matters Hub, where you can learn more about Mandy's unique perspective and delve into her brilliant insights and advice. Hi, Mandy. Thank you for joining me today. I am very excited to chat to you. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you, Gemma. The sun is shining. I've done a spin class. What more do you want in life? Exactly. I'm a little bit envious. I haven't been to the gym yet today, but it's, on, it's definitely on my list. If I get through everything on my list, oh, it'll be there. But it's lovely exactly. to start the morning like that. I've read your book and I have, we were chatting before we start recording today, I've been listening to tons of podcasts that you've been on as well. So kind of delving into your story. But for those of you that haven't come across your story yet, how would you describe your journey into flying a tornado? Yeah, so I'll give you a very quick canter through it, basically. I grew up in Manchester, very working class background. Mum was a teacher. My dad was a, he ran his own carpet business. And basically, I joined the Air Cadets. And it's often a stepping stone for many, many uh, youngsters into that world that perhaps they don't have any background in. And it was while I was there, I flew, fell in love with flying, set my heart on this as a career. But women weren't allowed to be pilots at the time. So I sort of chiseled away at the impossible dream and I then went to university, I gained a flying scholarship. So I, from that, I gained a private pilot's license and at university, I joined the next iteration of basically the Air Cadets, which is called the University Air Squadron. And while I was there, they changed the rules, allowing women to become pilots in the Air Force. I applied to join. I failed all the tests, not once, but twice. 
And eventually, after a very complex process, I was taken on as a test case. I then basically joined the Air Force, initially as an air traffic controller, and then I got transferred to a pilot. And then basically, it took about four and a half years for me once I was in the Air Force to actually qualify as a Tornado GR4 pilot on the front line after some really intense flying training courses. It's just unreal. Like, I, I, I listen to the your journey of getting there. And I think the, the thing that I find absolutely fascinating is when you started out on this journey, women couldn't even do what you ended up doing. So how how did you kind of keep going and and know that's what you wanted to do when it didn't it probably didn't seem like it was even a possibility at the start? Well, I think we have to put ourselves back to being a 13-year-old girl. So mm. you do something, you love it, and you go, I'm gonna do that. And you're not then going bigger picture, women aren't allowed Mm -hmm. to fly, you know, and and people saying, but women can't be pilots. And I was like, well, that'll happen at some point. You know, I think, I don't know, it was naivety, sort of this blind, you know, fixation on doing the career I wanted to do. In the back of my mind, I thought, well, if I, if they don't change the rules, I, I would become a police officer was always my sort of backup option. I've obviously got something about uniform. What can I say? But it was a really interesting one because... I think it's very easy to put this lovely rose-tinted spectacles on where we were and all the rest of it. But I think as a young person, you know, not in this world where we've got all of the technology around us, we've got all the information we need. You know, we used to get our information from encyclopedias. You know, if we had a project, we'd have to go to the library. You know, there was no internet. There was no World Wide Web. There was no mobile phones. And so it was a very small world. So you know, if you've set your sight on doing something, you just have to do the bits that you can. And I always say that, you know, control the controllables, do the, what you can do. And that's all I did. I worked hard at school. I, you know, did my Duke of Edinburgh's award scheme. I became head girl. I sort of did everything that enabled that to happen whilst waiting for the system to catch up. So I don't think it was, I, I don't think I was particularly special. I, I genuinely don't think I was. I just think, you know, my mum said, well, if it's going to be someone, why shouldn't it be you? Uh, you know, and so there's all these little things. It was just a very humble upbringing and, and just worked hard, really. What an amazing outlook, though. I, I talk a lot about perspective. And that that's something that I have to think about as well. When, when I'm kind of trying to do something that perhaps hasn't been done before, right? I haven't seen someone do it. Or I don't know anyone that's, that's done these things. Is I, I kind of default to that. Well, someone's got to do it. So why not try? Why not give it a shot? And I think... It's so easy to not do that, to think, hang on a sec, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen the evidence. I don't know someone that's done it. I don't know the steps to do it. But sometimes just, like you say, just working hard and, and, and taking steps towards something is yeah. sometimes all it takes. I'm not saying, you know, there's not a lot of hard work in there or sometimes even a stroke of luck, perhaps. But you've got to take the steps. You've got to at least try. Um, Amelia Earhart said basically, you know, to see if you can do it, do it. You know, and it's just like, that's the whole thing, yeah. isn't it? And I, I often talk in my speeches around, you know, you can't, you know, you've got to be able to see it to believe it and, you know, and all of these things. But ultimately, there was actually no one I could see that was doing it. And yet mm. I still believe. it. And so I do think there is a little bit of a sense whereby, yes, it's fantastic to have role models. But I also think there will always be people that are putting themselves out there and and trying new things. And and. There were quite a few of the girls on the University Air Squadron who went on to become pilots. Uh, One I'm thinking of particularly was a commercial pilot. And again, the two of us never sat there going, well, women aren't doing it. We both just loved flying. Mm -hmm. So it was a really interesting one that, 
you're not thinking of the bigger picture of I'm, you know, right, I'm being a pioneer. You're not, mm-hmm. you're not thinking like that. You're a 20 year old that's following a passion and following a dream and doing what they love doing. And it's just so happens now. And I think once I was in the Air Force, again, I didn't think of myself as special at all. Well, I certainly wasn't special. You know, I was just, I was just a pilot and I was with a lot of other pilots and I was not as good as some of the other pilots. So I was not even the best pilot by any stretch of the imagination. And so, you know, I would say I was sort of average, which I know sounds crazy. And I'm not doing this in a sort of like, oh, you know, belittling what I've achieved. I'm not doing that at all. But when you're surrounded by people who are all performing at a very high level and you realize that you're not at the you're not at the highest level, you're certainly not at the lowest. But, you know, you you just become realistic about where you are. But I kept my head down when I was in the Air Force. I'm not the gray man, admittedly. But when I left, I think that's when I realized that you actually do have a responsibility to the next generation now, if you have been one of those first, to sort of say, look, you can do this. And, uh, and the, the ladder's not just, I've not just climbed up the ladder, the ladder's now firmly rooted for others to literally swarm up behind you. And that's what you want, really. And what an amazing achievement. I mean, the career achievements and also leaving that legacy as well and, and building that pathway for others is just incredible. Um, can we talk a little bit about kind of, so talking about, you know, there weren't any women doing this when you first started out, or you were the second woman to fly a tornado, is that right? That's and right, I think yes. I heard somewhere, there's been more women that have stepped on the moon than have done women, this. More women have been into space than flew the tornado, yes. Which is just crazy. Crazy! <laughs> yeah, it is, it's madness, isn't it? Crazy, but what I found really interesting is the fact that when you talk about the aptitude test and going through that process and the way that that changed, and you were a test case to change that, which is incredible. So can you can you describe that story a little bit, please? Yeah, so it was a really interesting one. So as a, in my second year at university, they changed the rules and they opened the doors to women to become fast jet pilots on the front line. And there was a girl called Jo Salter who was already in the Air Force and as an engineer, and she instantly swapped across onto pilot and she made it. And so she became the very first female fast jet pilot. And Jo's a great friend of mine, a wonderful ambassador for aviation, you know, and she's been a fantastic role model. But she was sort of two or three years ahead of me. And so our paths actually bizarrely never crossed in the Air Force. I never once met Joe while I was serving. And we were at university and we applied to join. And I went down with another friend of mine, a girl. And when we did all the tests, I was informed I'd failed the aptitude test. Now, they're all computer based tests and you can only really take them twice in your lifetime. So when I did them the second time a year later and I failed them again, it almost raised a bit of a red flag, actually, for the boss of my university air squadron. And. I'd been flying quite regularly and I'd represented the squadron in aerobatics competitions and I was pretty good. I was, you know, you know, I was okay. And he just said, this doesn't make sense. You know, you're one of our highest performing pilots on the squadron. Why can't you pass these aptitude tests? And when they investigated, they found out the majority, about 70% of men passed them and 70% of women were failing them. And so you've got this unconscious bias that they're now realizing exists within the training and the testing system that they'd had no idea about because they'd never been tested on women. So it wasn't a failing from the Air Force. It was just that this had not been done before. And so actually, when they listened and they looked at that, that those factual information, they thought, right. So initially, they offered me a commission to become an air traffic controller, which I was really disappointed about because I thought, at least let me be a navigator because I can fly them. But they said, we're not needing navs at the moment. And your scores for air traffic are really high. And I was like, 
And I just thought, well, it's a foot in the door. And it was a really big leap of faith at that moment, though, because I'm signing up to serve until I'm 38 years old and I'm 21 in a career that I don't have any desire to follow. But I did want to join the Air Force now. So there's an underlying thing there. I wanted to serve and I wanted to be part of that team and that camaraderie that you exhibit when you join the forces. And they always say that you should join the forces primarily to serve. And then the career structure that you take within that has got to be secondary to that. And that is how I felt. Mm-hmm. And basically, once I was in, I wrote many letters. I got people on side. We spoke to lots of different people. And eventually I, I did receive a letter saying, you know, we are going to give you a branch change to pilot. And I find out that you're being taken on as a test case because they wanted to find out how far through the flying training system someone with very little aptitude could get before I failed. And they actually said that to me as well, that they they really expected me to fail. And at every single stage of my flying training, somebody from this team would contact the boss of that training course and say, how's Mandy doing? And they'd say, she's doing fine. Why? Oh, well, she's a test case. Uh, She's she's basically failed the aptitude test. And we want to see how far she'd get before she fails. And each time the bosses would become a bit protective of me and go, well, she's doing all right. I think you'll find. It highlighted to them as well that I was a test case. And I did get called in on, on one of them, which was my very final stages of fast jet training on the hall. He said, I've had the weirdest conversation, Mandy. I've put him in his place, don't worry. But they were basically trying to pick holes and ask you, you know, were, were you good enough? You know, at what point were you failing? And all of this sort of thing. And he said, you know, but I've, I've told them as if them, them straight that you're doing really well. And it's a very interesting one because when I was told that, a lot of people, when I do my speaking again, I say, you know, what did that do? Did it plant a fire within me to say I'm taking on an organisation or did it plant the seeds of doubt? I'm a 20-year-old girl. Of course it planted the seeds of doubt because if you're setting a goal for yourself and you know this more than anyone, Gemma, you're going to look at the positive goal that you're setting and you're going to try and find in your own mind a way to do it. And we might set smart goals and make them specific and we you know, break them down into achievable play pieces and all the rest of it. If you're being told that your goal is there but you won't achieve it, that pulls the rug out from all of that all of that uh, thought process of basically, I can achieve it. And so actually, the hardest thing I then had to deal with was my own psychological battles, which we now know was imposter syndrome. And it's now been obviously packaged as that. But at the time, I just kept thinking, I'm not good enough. And every time I would struggle, my default setting would be, it's because you failed the test. It's because you shouldn't really be here. It's because you're not good enough. And that's going to be a really big psychological hurdle. That is one of the most extreme cases of imposter syndrome that I think I've ever come across. And I think to some extent, I would, you know, I'd probably put a stake in the ground and say that the majority, if not all of us, deal with imposter syndrome at one point or another. I still deal with it all the time, even though, you know, I know the research, I know how to overcome it, I know what it means, I know how it's working in my head. I still, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with it right now, doing starting this podcast. But yeah, that's my head talking to me those are my thoughts and that's something that you can learn to not even just manage but you can learn to embrace and you can learn to use that but you have that extra layer of it's not just you thinking those things which you know probably lots of people would in a really high pressure environment like that you actually had other people like telling you which could be seen as concrete evidence of why it's not going to work reinforce yeah absolutely reinforcing you're not good enough and so that is really it is a really, really difficult one. And yeah, and I, and I, when I look back, actually, I, I am quite proud of myself because 
Mm. You know, I didn't let it consume me. And I think one of the reasons I didn't was because, and I talk about the team a lot, but when you're going through, you know, flying training, you're with a group of, and they were all men. I had another girl on the course in front, but predominantly men that were going through that course with me. And they become like your best friends, your band of brothers. And you are willing to go to the end of the earth for these people. And really, I think any time any of us struggled, the, ter- the, the whole team would encompass them and try to lift them up. And that happened to me so many times when I think, you know, I would have been struggling or been having doubts because everyone was hard, finding it hard. You know, they often describe it as like doing an advanced driving test twice a day for 10 months. It's intense flying training and it's one of the hardest flying training courses in the world. And so, yeah, it's, it is tough. And so you are going to have doubts and everyone had doubts. But having that concrete evidence to say you're not good enough is going to be a really big challenge. And at the end of that process, so obviously you you get through the testing, you build your career in that way. But after that process, was that aptitude test actually changed? Do you know? Yeah, they did. They did test. And actually, one of my most scary days ever was I was flying tornadoes. I'd just come back from the Gulf. I'd been flying out in Iraq. And they came back and they said, oh, Mandy, we've changed all the testing and we'd love to get you back now. Could you come and just do all the new tests and let's see how you get on? I thought, my God, what happens if I fail now? I'm just, I'm just shit. <laughs> so, oh sorry, I don't know what you mean. I just thought, what happens? I'm just rubbish. Anyway, I went back and I passed them with flying colours, as one would hope, because I'm now flying a tornado. But it did make me realise that, you know, actually, but I've always, I'm still, I mean, it's really funny, a friend of mine, um, who's a guy, actually, Matt, he also failed the test and also then got taken on as well. And and he still has absolute horrors. He flies with British Airways now and, and he had to go back and do some tests. And he said, Mandy, I'm, I'm literally having palpitations at the thought of going back and doing any sort of aptitude tests again because we get this inherent fear about doing them. I'm not surprised. I'm really not surprised. And it's funny because my, my start into the world of psychology was actually an, as an occupational psychologist. So I've never actually designed aptitude tests, but lots of my kind of colleagues... Wow have designed that so it was very interesting hearing your story about how actually maybe we don't always get it right and I think there's really you know thank goodness someone's willing to challenge that and and go back and change that because sometimes in life or maybe quite often in life that doesn't happen so it's it's a bit of a testament really that you know someone was willing to change that and it was yeah absolutely I do say I say this a lot now when I'm speaking to businesses particularly I just say you know there's a lot of cognitive diversity out there we're seeing it more and more both my boys are severely dyslexic and so is my husband and basically I think when we have these tests that we put people through we we lose a lot of really really good candidates who would be brilliant for those roles that just aren't fitting into the envelope because they they do have that diversity of thought and yet they're the people we need because they have the diversity of thought so we don't want to just create an echo chamber in our workplace and yet we're excluding all of these people because they're not passing the aptitude test or that that testing that's been done for that career and I do think we need to perhaps think a bit bigger and, and a little bit outside the box on how we do that and I think I encourage all all people to challenge that if they do see often someone that's sort of slightly you know off center that they think oh could should we take a punt on them often do because mm. it will be those people that themselves to be a real real asset to the company 100 and I think if you're someone that's in that position where you feel like you don't tick all the boxes or you don't you're not sure how you're going to fit in something or how you're going to make something work I think find a way like my my advice and I know it's not easy and you know 
I, there's lots of ways that I've had to do this one. It's definitely not easy, but there is an element of try and find a way, try and make the stuff happen, even if the path's not already there, exactly as you say in your position. The path wasn't there when you, when your passion, you know, you were growing your passion as a child, but that didn't stop you. That's not, that doesn't have to limit you. Over time, yeah. we can find a way to do things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it's all about self-belief. Yeah, yes, it is. But it's also about having p- other people that encourage you uh, and yeah. lift you up. And I think that's really, really important. So both my parents really supported me. My mum, it's going to be someone, why shouldn't it be you? My dad mm. has got, well, sadly, he passed away recently, but he has more resilience than any person I've ever met. You know, he would hit knockdown after knockdown and he always gets back up. And I think when I look, I've got to all of, a lot of his resilience, my resilience comes from my dad. And when I look at my older son, he also is incredibly resilient. And I think, you know, it's something that often comes from knockbacks that we do become much more resilient. And, and we don't, uh, yeah, we don't like talking about failure, do we? Nope. Because failure is construed as a bad thing from mm-hmm. the start of our lives, from failing a spelling test. And yet it's really good to be resilient. But you mm-hmm. can't get resilient without failure. And so it's this, this relationship comes hand in hand, one of which we're saying it's bad to fail, but one of which we're saying it's great to be resilient. You can't have everything. And so, you know, I think that's a really interesting conversation as well. 100%. And I'm so passionate about talking about failure. It's something that I think most of us probably try and avoid. And I think we, I also think kind of if you think about how we start out in life and think about our education system and, you know, it's pass or fail. It's you achieve it or you don't achieve it. We, you know, it's, maybe that's changing. I've got two small children. Maybe that's changing a little bit. But sadly not enough, unfortunately. I don't think so. And I don't, I, I and I do, you know, I, I think about my kids. I try, I try my best to, my worst fear, or one of my worst fears of them being at school is that they're going to be so stressed out doing exams. I mean, they're three and five, they're tiny. Like they're going to be stressed out doing exams or thinking about that next achievement rather than thinking, I'm going to give it a go and I'm going to learn something in the process. And sometimes things work out really amazingly. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes you learn something from that and you change course. Or sometimes you learn something and then develop the skills to get even better at what you're doing. Yeah. And I think the fear of failure is one of the biggest contributors to not achieving something not succeeding and also probably like experiencing really intense mental health challenges or psychological challenges completely agree agree, Gemma and if you think it starts back you know let's take ourselves back to a spelling test at school so you've Mm. got these children that coming in at five years old and they're doing a spelling test and they don't get it right they come home and they say mum dad I got four out of I've got eight out of ten and you say which ones did you get wrong it's instantly what we do Mm. so we instantly focus on the failure rather than you got eight right wow that is absolutely brilliant I did it myself and I realized oh my goodness it was such a wake up to myself so my older son was is really dyslexic my younger son is is moderately dyslexic and basically we would do spelling tests and it was only when my second son became you know at, at primary school and was doing tests himself and I'd say, OK, guys, there was a one penny sweet shop opposite the school. Everyone that you get right from your spelling test, we get a, we get a sweet. Older son spending ages doing these spellings and getting three out of ten. Younger son looked at it in the car and got ten out of ten. Who gets the sweets? Well, who gets the effort? So I had to really turn it around and say, OK, we're going to get effort put in for how many minutes we spend doing our work. And you realise very quickly, it's we can't be just output driven all the time. It's got to be the effort that's put in that we're celebrating. 
And it's interesting as well when you think about, say, sports days, the horror for that child not being picked on a team, the horror of losing, you know, and I know we've turned it round and I'm a, I am a believer that there has to be some level of competition at schools because, you know, I do think that's healthy, but mm-hmm. it was, and I've always been of that mindset. And then I went to see my little nephew in a sports day last year and their school did a, it was a sort of a, a let's see who can do the craziest run in a race, you know, and let's see who can jump back. And all of the, do you know what? And I was thinking, well, it's not very competitive. And then I was watching all their faces. We had the, the smallest, most unsporty person winning the crazy dancing competition. And, you know, and I just thought they're all having a ball. What is it about it that we have to have a winner and a loser? We have, you know, actually the, the, they celebrated the fact that they'd had a brilliant day. Mm-hmm. And all of these kids came out absolutely buzzing. And I did think maybe I need to reassess that whole old fashioned school thing that even I had to some degree, which was, you know, it's important to have, you know, to, you know, it's a real life scenario is that there will be winners in life and there will be losers. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But children are going to learn pretty quickly anyway. So actually giving them the joy of, you know, celebrating effort put in, celebrating mm. every single person's skill set. I do think there is something to be said for that as well, because you know what? We there's plenty of failure that can be had as we get out as we grow up and hopefully as we get older. I think a good way of learning that actually is through doing sport in a team, actually. And I saw my son playing rugby and he just he delivered uh, he he basically developed a technique to protect himself from the fact that he always burst into tears whenever they lost in rugby and he basically feigned an injury about five minutes from the end of the match because then he could officially burst into tears and be sobbing because he was injured be taken off the pitch then they would lose and he'd be feeling fine and could go in and shake everyone's hand like a big boy. And it was really interesting. I thought, gosh, Jamie gets injured every single time. And I was like, actually, he's not really injured. Oh my gosh, he's developing very quickly, knowing he's very emotional, that he doesn't want to burst into tears for losing. So he developed this strategy. And I thought it was really interesting how he did that. I think that's really clever. It's also very emotionally intelligent because he knows it's coming and it's finding a way of managing yeah. that process in a way that works yeah. for him. I think that's really clever. We're talking five till five, six, seven-ish, that sort of age as well. And it was just funny watching. We were all going, gosh, he's, that's another time he's got injured. That was really weird. And then I saw it and I, oh my goodness, that's what he's doing. Very clever. Yeah. I think it's very clever. Very, very smart. What's um what's kind of your relationship with failure? So did you ever feel like you failed at something? I mean, it doesn't even have to be career-wise. It could be anywhere in life. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I've failed so many times. In fact, I mean, you know, often when I'm speaking, I just feel, I actually say, by the way, I haven't failed at everything I've done in life because I think often when I'm talking, it's just like, and then I failed the test and then I failed this flight and then I was about to fail flying training and then my friends helped me and then... There was this stage and then I was doing air-to-air tanking and I failed at that. And I was like, that's when I go, by the way, I am actually quite successful in other ways. Um, But yeah, I think a classic was when um, I wrote my book and I sent it off. I got a literary agent and, you know, it was all going really well. And then we sent it off to all these publishing houses and it was just rejected and I didn't seem to be getting anywhere. And then I got this one email that really stung and it said, plain books are for a male readership that have no interest in a woman's story. And I thought what century are we in that we're still getting emails like that? And people sort of say, oh, do we really still have to have this women, this women, that? And the answer is, yes, we do for that reason. I was so furious about it. And I instantly thought, do you know what? I am not going to go with a publisher 
So actually, regardless at that point, I decided to self-publish it. And I did. I self-published it, my book on Amazon. And, you know, and I had no idea. I'd never written a book. I'd never been in publishing before. And, you know, it sold around 30,000 copies. And it's, I did the audio book, which I was fun to record, you know, and it, it's done really, really well. I've kept the rights of it. I love it. I use my local printer here in Winchester, Tony. He prints me my books and brings them round. And I can, and I, you know, sell them or give them out at um, conferences that I speak at. And what I found really interesting on, on that one is I'm now about to write a second book because everyone keeps saying, is there a second book coming? Now, I worked with a ghostwriter, Bob, my really good friend for the first book. And now on my second book, I'm so scared because I'm there now thinking, now people are going to really find out. I don't know what I'm talking about. So like you with this podcast, Gemma, I am absolutely struck by imposter syndrome. And to the point where it's almost stopping me from doing this. I do know there's lots of things that we could write, that we could be helpful. And yet in the back of my mind, I'm keep, I keep on thinking, it won't be good as the first book. People will find it out. People will criticise me. And it's I'm finding that pretty consuming at the moment, if I'm honest. And so I keep mm. on delaying it. That sounds exactly like me in this podcast. It's I can totally, totally empathise with that process. And I think, I honestly think the awareness of that is the first step. Because so often in life, I look back at the kind of, perhaps when I was a bit younger and starting out in my career, I think there were so many times where I didn't do things because I felt like I wasn't good enough or I would never be the person that could do this thing. And in reality, well, as I now know, and that's probably we're all starting to learn, is that the only way you build confidence is by doing something, is by trying it, getting knocked back a little bit maybe, um, having to get back up again, learning as you go. You cannot, because the thing is, you, you, you can't have the confidence to do something new because you've never done it. Confidence comes from experience. You can't, yeah. I mean, you can have self-belief. Yeah. You can believe that you'll find a way. And that's something that actually does come into resilience is this idea of self-efficacy, which is you don't have to have all the answers. You don't know, have, to know how, have to know how to do something, but it's the belief that you will find a way. You will, you know, yeah. rely on support. You'll, you'll research. You'll have people around you that can guide you. Whatever way, yeah. you know, you'll get a qualification, whatever it is. But that's different to confidence. Confidence is yeah. knowing that or feeling like you're going to achieve what you want to achieve. And and I think the only way we the only way we build that is by is by doing it. And I think that's where imposter syndrome comes in, because it's that fear of failure and fear of being found out. Someone's going to know that I don't know how to do this. or I don't know what I'm doing. Someone's going to basically it's that fear of someone finding out, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but the only way we can do it is by trying. And I think. genuinely I think the first step is awareness because I think before and I know lots of people that have been in this position that where they've held themselves back because they feel like they can't achieve something but they don't necessarily know that it's because it's the fear of failure or it's imposter syndrome or it's I haven't quite got the confidence for that yet because I haven't got the experience to show but I think it was if we know that we can kind of slowly take steps to push through that barrier and push through that boundary when I've put my book out the first time and um when I handed it across to the to the guy to do all the formatting and everything I felt like I'd handed a dissertation in it was like oh I finished it we sat in the garden it was locked down we played backgammon and we drank rosé and it was like oh I'm so happy it's done and then the reality of people are going to read it is a completely different feeling because then I was saying oh my goodness, the book's been launched and everyone texted me or emailed me and said, oh, it's going to be brilliant. You're so funny. You're so inspirational. And I thought it's neither of those things. 
It's just my story. And I felt physically sick for about a week after that book had actually been launched. And I thought, oh my gosh, everyone's going to read my story. And it sounds crazy because I've just written my story. So what, why am I feeling like that? I yeah. speak about my story. And yet the reality of, of, of having something that's a legacy that literally is going to sit there in the annals of time that anyone could read, you know, actually that's not even just someone that's sought me out to hear me speak or something like that. And I think it's a really interesting one. And, and that really played with my mind, actually. But I would just say, you know, for the, the imposter syndrome side of things, I think it's good to have a little bit of imposter syndrome. Otherwise, we are egotistical, com- overconfident people that just believe we can achieve anything. Well, that's yeah. actually not very good either. So I think having a touch of humbleness about us keeps us keeps us sane and it keeps it real, you know. And I think that that's really, really important as well. So I embrace the imposter syndrome. But one thing I would say to anyone that is listening that does suffer from this is that it's when we allow it to control us. That's your difficulty. And that's where we have to work out a tool, techniques. So for myself, if I'm just, if I'm getting, I mean, I had a classic one where I was asked to speak at an International Atomic Energy Agency conference in Vienna to the United Nations. Now, there have been a huge build up to this. I must have had about 10 conference calls before it. And I was speaking to like 200 world leaders from the nuclear power sector who were pretty much all men. And I walked into this room and I've had, you had to do, I've had to do surveys, I've had to do quizzes about working for the United Nations. What do I do if there's a bomb threat? Which flight of stairs would I take? I felt like I was going on some mission to Africa or something. I thought, I'm just going to Vienna to do a speech, for goodness sake. Anyway, all that aside, it felt that like it was a big build-up. And I'd said, yes, I could do it. And then this massive voice was going, you have no idea what you're talking about. You will be found out. This is the moment that literally you're going to embarrass yourself on the stage. And I sat there and I got so consumed by this negative voices. I went into the toilet and, and I've now used this as an absolute proven technique. I don't say it has to be a toilet, but any small room will do. Um, I go into the loo because it's always there's always a toilet there. And I shut the door and I say, where's the evidence, Mandy? Where's the evidence that you can't do this? And there's often none. It's just inside your head. And then you say, where's the proof that you can? Now, I want you to then visualize that time when something really worked out well, when especially if it mirrors what you're about to go and do. So for me, it will be a standing ovation at a speech or if it's a meeting that I'm speaking at. I think one day I got a really positive feedback. They said, man, that's such a good point. Right. Let's take that point forward. You know, where you literally have got that positivity and I link it to a color. Now, my color's purple and I link it to that color purple. And then when I step out the door, I'm visualizing myself. And I always say, and tonight, Matthew, I'm going to be confident. And I come out of that toilet door and it's like, that is it. I am confident. And and that's how I do it. And I basically walked into that United Nations one and there was all these translators at the back. And I sat at the, on the podium and I was with these three other men. And I listened to two other men speaking before me and I thought, they are so boring. Whatever I have to say is going to be more interesting than this. And actually, I stood up, delivered my 20 minutes punchy, sharp, funny, you know, lots of loads of questions, great feedback, got such good response from everybody, asked to go and speak to all these nuclear power stations around Bulgaria and all these, you know, afterwards. And, you know, it was really interesting. And I thought, why do we have those worries? And why do we let it consume us? And so, yeah, yeah my, t- my thoughts, imposter syndrome is good in a small degree. Don't let it control you and find a technique to get over it. 
What a brilliant technique. I mean, anyone can do that. Absolutely anyone can find a space yeah. to do that. Um, I love this tonight, Matthew. So that's what what was the TV show that was from Stars in Their Eyes. Stars in Their Eyes, that's it. And you can so the idea is that so anyone that hasn't seen that show, you would transform into a singer. Like it could be you no, know, someone could come out as George Michael or I don't know, Dolly Parton yeah. or Britney Spears. I'm trying to think of a young, like, you know, I'm not really down with the kids. I'm trying to think of someone young, but mine all like um, <laughs> I can't think of any. I can't think of any. Now I'm on the spot. But the idea is up there and down you just the idea is that you literally you you come on the stage as you you go back you get done up you know you've got your wig on and your outfit whatever and you come out as that person so I love that idea like tonight Matthew I'm going to be and it's not a person it's confident I love that that's what I'm gonna do yeah Yeah. it really works it really works it's such it's such a great tip and I think it's I think what's really interesting about that story is it would be very easy to and I think people in that audience probably wouldn't even know you were going through that because it'd be very easy to look at you and look at what you've achieved and think never in a million years would you ever not feel confident. I mean, look at what you've done. Like you've you've done things that people can't even imagine how to do that or how to make that happen and how to make a success of a life like that and leaving that legacy and, and, and creating that pathway for other people. That what I think is really important about that message is even someone that has achieved amazing things can still experience imposter syndrome or not yeah. feel confident all of the time because it's normal. That's it's, it's normal. All of us I experience it. You're absolutely right, Gemma. And that's why I deliberately speak about it because I think people can, they can watch me on a stage, they can hear me on a podcast and they can say, oh, I could never do that because Mandy's something different. She's something special. I don't think I am something special. I genuinely don't. I think I'm just someone that's worked hard, that's been in the right time at the right place, that's put her head down and achieved what she's achieved. Now, what I would say I am proud of is the fact that I did never give up I, and I never gave up. And when I left the Air Force as well 12 years ago, again, I managed to set up a business from complete scratch. It's turned into a very, very successful business now. And, you know, I'm often, and this is what I'm equally as proud of. I'm often cited in the sort of top 10 most inspirational speakers in the UK. I'm asked to speak overseas all the time. I'm almost fully booked as a speaker. And that has come from nothing. So mm. when I look at, you know, yes, I achieved my first career and I'm very proud of it. Could I have done more? Yes, I could. I don't feel I was a huge success in the Air Force, though. I achieved that goal. But compared to some of my, you know, um, colleagues, they've gone on to achieve much greater things. And so I don't look at my, my RAF career and think, wow, you were amazing, successful. I wasn't, I was just, I was, I was the same as everyone else that was in the Air Force that was doing what I was doing. And yet I think afterwards, yes, I am, I, I am proud now of, hand on heart, I am proud of what I've achieved since leaving the Air Force because just I get a message on Instagram two days ago, which was from a girl who's going through RAF Shawbury at the moment, going through her helicopter training. And, and I said, oh my goodness, just wonderful to see you. Good luck. I hope the course goes really well, just on Instagram. She said, you spoke at my school at seven years ago. Now that to me, just, that says it all. You know, you just think you're doing a speech at a school and yet you have making an impact on people that will come back and reflect and say, you have made a difference, you know, and I've got lots and lots and lots. I've got people in America that are saying, stumbled on your book at this stage and literally it's changed my life and how I've, how I've managed to manage something. That is making a huge difference. And, and that is something I am very, very proud of. 
that's amazing. It makes me quite emotional hearing stories like that because I just think, no, wow. I burst tears when it as well. <laughs> amazing. It's just, you know, and it is that idea that people are looking, people are watching, and you don't necessarily even know. And what I think I really appreciate as well, and, and, and especially in your book, but also you talking, is that you have this really great mix. So obviously, there's so much about resilience in there, and kind of so many times you mentioned, like, why not me and I'm not going to give up and there were times where it probably would have been easy to cave into those voices or you know what you're telling yourself but you don't you just keep going I also think that it's really lovely to see a mix of someone that is incredibly determined and driven and can push yourself but also you definitely you know talking about imposter syndrome talking about making a difference to someone's life you you do have that kind of empathetic side as well like that it's not just kind of push 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 there's there's an actual human there as well and I think it's so powerful you sharing stories like that it'd be easy to not talk about failure it'd be easy to talk about the successes because you have so many examples of that but putting that human side into it and, and sharing those stories is so powerful for people listening and watching I think yeah, and I think the best piece of advice I was ever given actually was when I left the Air Force and I was, um, someone suggested I go into speaking and I sort of went, never heard of it, didn't know about it. So I went to see a, a gentleman, a guy called Alan, and he was an ex-Royal Marine, he was an Arctic explorer, and I, and I listened to his speech and I thought, oh, gosh, he's so good, he's so brilliant. And I went up to him and I said, but how do I do what you're doing? And I thought he would just say, well, you need to contact this speaker's bureau, you need to get onto this agency. He just said, Mandy, just be yourself. And I thought, that's crap advice. <laughs> um, I literally thought that's rubbish. And I thought I wasn't wanting any names of agents. And then I was reflecting on it. And I've reflected on that one piece of advice pretty much ever since, which is be yourself. And I think in a world where we have all of these celebrities and this fakeness and these these so many pouting lips and, and all of this, this facade that is going on that is so, so, so basically... I think it's just so demoralizing for so many people because they think that's not me. My goodness, I've got to, I've got to be pretending to be. I've got to be doing the selfie where I look beautiful. I mean, look at me on this podcast. I'm talking to you. I've got my hair scraped back. I've just come back from a spin class and I finally stopped sweating. But ultimately, I think it's about being real. Just be your normal self. Be authentic because guess what people want in this world at this moment in time? They want authenticity. They want real people telling real stories, not just saying, I'm bloody brilliant because I did this. Do you know what? I'm not. One of my biggest worries in life has always been that I was failing as a mum because my two boys are very, very strong-willed. They're both, they're 19 and, and 18 now. They're six foot six and six foot five. And, you know, they're really powerful characters. Both dropped out of their sixth form, both for different reasons, COVID, lockdown, dyslexia not fitting in a huge break in their schooling over the lockdown period and when we went back in September he just said I can't go back mum and actually I felt like a huge failure I felt that this is a failure on me I'm in this wonderful world in Winchester where every single student goes off to university and they do the next stage and there I was saying no my children have dropped out and I felt everyone's going well that's shocking and I was talking yesterday at this event and um we were talking about what does success look like? And I said, both my boys are really happy at this moment in time. They've got an incredible work ethic. 
One's running his own company. One's working full time at the leisure centre. He gets up at 5.30 every single morning. He goes to work. He is happy. He is loving life. What is success? And I think success at this moment in time is having happy teenagers. Because do you know what? There is so much anguish and mental health issues in our teens at the moment that if I've got two boys that are happy, then I'm then, then I'm happy. And so I think we need to reassess where we're putting our pressures on ourselves and where we're assessing what is success. Because mm. is success a children a child going off to university, hating it, delaying any thought process for three years, taking a lot of drugs and coming out with £60,000 worth of debt? Is that success? Well, I don't know anymore. And so yeah. I think we really do need to reassess where we're up to in our own lives when we look at what that looks like. Oh, I, could, I totally couldn't agree more. And I'm in exactly the same boat. I think my biggest, in terms of like feeling like a failure, I feel like that most when I think of parenting. Like, I feel yeah. like I'm pretty good in my career. Like I've, I yes. like know, kind of know what I'm doing. And I know like there's always new things coming and I suffer with imposter syndrome most days. And but I can manage that. And I know kind of, I guess, logically like looking in I'm like actually you're doing okay like and you know I turn up to work and I generally know what I'm doing sometimes I don't and that's okay I'm quite comfortable matching shoes on you've got matching shoes on (laughs) you know I I can talk about research and I can you know you know I I can do those things and yet with parenting every and I'm not exaggerating here every single day I feel like I'm getting it wrong I'm like I didn't manage that argument between them correctly or I haven't given my five-year-old as much time as my three-year-old or my three-year-old really struggles with nursery and my five-year-old didn't and I'm like are we managing that have we done that has is it her personality are we and like we have sleep oh, it's ridiculous yeah my times in our house but even that you know I've been heavy on the sleep training and then I've been like actually they're tiny it's a moment in time and less strict on it and I'm like are we getting that right are we um you will do that for the next 20 years, Gemma. I, I, I assure you of that. I hate to say that. I'm really sorry. That's not me going, oh, and you've got it all coming. But no, because I still do now. I literally, yeah. my son came in and I said something to him last night and he went, why are you saying it like that to me? And I thought, and I just said to my husband literally this morning, I went, we didn't handle that conversation very well. You know, so we still are having those conversations. It's just with a different level. And I think, you know, it's the one thing there is no rule book for, because guess what? Every single child is an individual and every single child is different. And I think it's really easy to be judgmental when you've got friends that you think, oh, their children just comply. They're great. Mm-hmm. They just do what they're told. Mine never did. You know, you, you say naughty stuff and they look at you and go, I think not. Or one of them was had such a sense of righteousness that if you put him on the naughty step, he'd say, you're only putting me on here because Jack is on here all the time and you feel bad. So I tell you what, I will sit on here and I'll do double the amount of time. That was the my younger one. <laughs> Because he knew he should not be on the naughty step and therefore it was unjust. And so he would prove his point by sitting there for double the amount of time than he was actually told to sit there for. And you're just going, I'm not going to win. I can't win. So, yeah, it's, tough. it is it's, tough. Uh, and I think like a lot of my imposter syndrome comes in there as well. And I think, I'm not a parent. I don't know. No, I didn't go to parent school. No one taught me this stuff. And we're all no. kind of... And it does help. I think you talked a little bit earlier about support as well, like in, in career. And that's huge. So we, so we know from research, support is one of the biggest factors that can either help or hinder resilience. So how resilient, how, how likely you are to kind of positively adapt after adversity, which is really what resilience is. 
Um, but I think that, in, you know, in all areas of life as well, it could be your career, it could be studying for qualification, it could be parenting, like being able to talk about those things and talking to other people, I think, can be so helpful. Yeah. But it's something that we don't necessarily you, like to admit. It is. But if you look at, I mean, businesses are doing this now more and more, because if you look at the mentoring schemes, and I often say, you know, we have these mentoring schemes in place in business where they're enforced or you're given a mentor. A much, much more powerful tool is to self-select mentors. And I have started to do that actually in life a little bit. So I met a woman in spinning who I got on really well with. She's, what, uh, 12, 13 years older than me, has progressed. She does a lot of things on on boards, charity trustees. And thought, yeah, that's where I would like to be in that amount of time. So, you know, can I take you out for coffee? We become great friends. So she's sort of become a mentor for that section of my life. I'll have a different person that I'll go to as a mentor in this area of my life. Mm-hmm. And you could say it's life coaching of an informal variety. It is. But I would say actively seek out people. And I have got this, by the way, now on um, people contacted me on LinkedIn and say, you talk about mentoring, you talk about being positive role models. Would you be a mentor for me? Now, I can't be for them for every single person that contacts me. But I do say, look, I'm happy to offer any advice. If if we can meet up, I will. I have 10 minute Zooms with people, you know, where they say, gosh, I'm really struggling with this area. Can you help me? Yes, I do. And I've got a lot of young girls, particularly who are into aviation, who I'm really, really encouraging. And their parents contact me actually and say, thank you. You are making a difference. Now, that does make a difference. So and what I'm finding out now is I've got this one girl in particular. and She's really into her gliding and I love that she's doing this. She's developed a huge social media following. I've really encouraged her. She's now really encouraging others. So you know what? It, this is brilliant because it it's just becomes this circle whereby you can sort of offer not official mentoring, but advice, guidance, help. They don't do it. She's only 15. She's offering advice and guidance to others. Well, that is so powerful. It's brilliant. And I just think create that circle. And I think, you know, that mentoring system in our own personal lives is, is equally as important. I totally agree. And also there's this element of, with that mentoring, so with helping other people, it gives your life meaning, it gives you purpose. And again, you know, coming back, that's another factor that comes into thriving under pressure or building resilience or even like psychological well-being. Being, helping other people actually helps us. It makes us feel better. So yeah. it's, it's kind of, you know, you just, you just can't go wrong because you're helping others, but you're also helping, like building your sense of well-being at the same time as well. So I think that's brilliant advice. You know what, when we when we volunteer for something, we think, aren't I being good? The reality is, is you get so much more from volunteering. So in lockdown, mm-hmm. I contacted my local hospital and I said, my husband and I, and said, look, these are my skill sets. My work has dried up. I've got nothing going on whatsoever. Can we help to volunteer? Gave them a whole list of all the things I could do, sort of my CV, which looked quite impressive. And they said, yes, please. We need you in the laundry, folding scrubs. (laughs) And I said, right, that's fantastic. So my husband and I donned on our volunteer green t-shirts, went in with our full COVID masks on and for two years, just under two years, I went in every once a week and I literally went into the laundry and I laundered the scrubs, folded, tumble dried, and basically got them all set up to go out and took them out to the front line. And you know what? You can say, well, that was really good. You know, you're giving. Well done, you. Isn't that lovely? 
No, it was bloody brilliant because it gave me purpose. It gave me something to do. It gave me a structure to my week. It gave me a fulfillment to think I was giving back. And I also had a realized the reality of, you know what? Every single person's job is so important. I talk about it all the time. Mm-hmm. Those people working those in that laundry were are just as important. They're just doing a different job to the people who are on the wards, you know, and I think it's about recognizing every single person is needed in a team. And again, that was just such a great wake up call to me. Um, so I think, you know, let's never underestimate the power of voluntary, voluntary work. And does that also tap into your idea about service as well? Because you were saying like when you started your career with the RAF, it was about service more than anything. Do you think it kind of tapped into that? Yeah, I do actually. But I do think, I think ultimately, again, I've always been, we've always been taught to do that. So for my mum, from a young age, we were, but also in things like I did all the brownies and guides and all that sort of thing. But one of the big things that they would have in that would be that you would go to perhaps care homes, you would sing carols, you would go, you would help out. Doing the Duke of Edinburgh's award scheme, one of those is service. You would go and you do something, whether it's helping at a, you know, a nursery or, a, you know, perhaps um you know a a special needs group or something like that and actually do you know what it was really really good it was really powerful to do that and I think you realize when you do that that actually it's it's quite it's eye-opening for yourself as well and you learn an awful lot about yourself because you're often putting yourself in a slightly different position but it's really I'm a real believer in what goes around comes around and so I do I do do quite a lot you know I will volunteer for things I've always been the one that steps forward I always end up going I'll be the chair of the tennis club yes why not because I've got so much spare time um yes of course I can help doing that but as they always say it's always busy people that volunteer to do more and more you know I of course I was a school governor because why wouldn't I be in my spare time so yeah you do things and you learn skills and I think you know I, I started as school governor I then have been a trustee at the victory services club which is a military club in London I've just finished doing that and it's now right what's my next one well someone's just contacted me and said would I like to be a trustee on this other charity again that could come to fruition we're just in the starting point of discussing that that's a much bigger charity and one I would be very very passionate about well I wouldn't have done that had I not done the school governor the victory services club so they're all stepping stones but they're not done deliberately so I can think yes I'm getting better they are done because I actually want to do them at that time of my life and I think that's part of that whole, you give what you get. It's such an important cycle. I'm kind of, I'd love to kind of jump into as well. I'm conscious I haven't talked a lot about flying today. And that's probably because I'm not very technical. Like, I'm actually a little bit scared of flying, if I'm honest. Um, I don't know flying in a plane. <laughs> we were talking about this earlier, about being technical and cars and that kind of jazz. Um, yeah. But can you, I, I would just love, because I get this from your book as well. Like, I feel like, when I'm reading those words, I'm there with you. And it's so powerful for someone who has no clue about that world. I have no insight at all into that world. Can you give me, like, can you describe what it's like being in combat? Like, what that actually feels like, or what's going on in your head, or what's going on around you? Yeah, so all of your training has come to this point in time. So you've been training for four and a half, five years. You come out the other end of training and training pushes you all the time, all the time, all the time. When you arrive on a squadron, you're then training still. So we would go to, for example, uh, Las Vegas and we'd be flying in the Arizona desert. Why? Because you're going to be training in an environment that you're going to be flying in for real in a war zone. 
So you're not just going to go, let's go flying through Wales all the time because it's lovely and green and it's hilly. Well, that's not relative to what you'll be doing in a war zone. And so you need to practice with what you're actually going to do and be put through your paces. So we do a lot of simulator work that basically means that when something happens in an area of conflict or combat, you're not thinking about it for the first time. You're not going, oh, fight, flight, freeze. This is a nightmare. I'm just going to react. You are going to give a measured response. And that comes through years and years and years of training at a really, really high level. So when you finally go out to an area of conflict, and for myself, it was defending the no-fly zone over southern Iraq. We were based in Kuwait and we would fly up into Iraq every day. It was really, really hot. It's you know in the 40s, so already you're in a very hot, sticky environment. You're flying. There was no air conditioning in the jet before you get airborne because it's, it's cooling down all of your avionic systems. So you're soaked through with sweat before you get airborne. And then as soon as you get airborne, the air con kicks in and then all of your wet clothes are now freezing cold. So you're in this really weird situation. The big one for myself is that you're also going to be doing things that are slightly differently. So we would be using a secure radio, which was a really complex system to put all the numbers in. And my biggest fear was never getting up on the secure radio, because if you couldn't get up on secure radio, which basically means that you're not in an open comm situation, you weren't allowed to go over the border. So that was a really stressful one. And it was in a really weird position. It was right behind your right sort of buttock. And so you're straining, looking backwards, trying to input a whole load of digits as quickly as you possibly can in the right order and get a at the end to say, you've done it correctly. And then you can go live. And I was thinking, if you make one mistake, it, it won't work. And so the, the stress at that moment is really horrific. Anyway, you get airborne and then you go up into a rack. And I mean, you would have quite a lot of benign ones, but we had ones where I was shot at by gunfire. So they have these huge guns, basically, that launch, you know, they can fire not missiles, but actual guns up to about 30,000 feet. And we'd be flying and you sort of go, gosh, what are all these little black clouds? Oh my gosh, it's ammunition that's exploding around us. And it'd be like, wow. So we'd get out of that one. I did have one night where I was on my last target where I was basically doing reconnaissance. We were doing, actually it was called a show of force. Basically, we were just over there, basically saying we are still here, we are present. And we were locked on by a, a surface to air missile in a heat seeking mode. So basically, normally a missile would be sent in a radar acquisition mode. And we have got a lot of technology on board in the tornado that would tell us that a radar is even looking at us on the ground. You can then see the flight sequence of it being launched at the, the missile head then looking at you. And we didn't have any of that. It was sent up in what's called heat seeking mode, i.e. a bit like Top Gun. It locked onto the heat of your engines. And so basically, my navigator spotted it coming up because he had his goggles, night vision goggles on. And just said, Mandy, break right. And we did a manoeuvre whereby we put out some flares, which act as a countermeasure. We would have saw, that, saw those all in Maverick. And literally the missile took those flares and it exploded. And we were then in a very complex scenario where we're then tasked to perhaps uh, destroy a target. And so there's a lot going on. There's about 80 aircraft airborne on some missions, probably between about 30 to 80 aircraft, dependent on what the tasking is. And each of those aircraft are from different bases in different countries around the Persian Gulf, and you're on one mission. So again, the complexity of the communications plan, ensuring that you don't have any conflicts, blue on blue, we would call it, is really important. So the planning stages are enormous. I've been on missions where I've gone up to just south of the Bag of Baghdad, and we our target was to destroy a fiber optics building because all the intelligence was about to go underground. And so 
you know, when I was sort of heading north, my navigator said, Mandy, are your night vision goggles up or down? And I said, they're up. And he said, leave them that way. Clink. Instantly, my goggles go down like a toddler being told not to do something. And I look and literally we are seeing tracer rounds, ammunition, missiles being fired up all in front of us. The whole sky is almost lit up. It's like sort of bonfire night. And we're going straight into that. And you're thinking, oh, okay, this is interesting. Right. This is maybe what a clenching time knowing that you've got a job to do, you've got to do it very, very professionally, and your communications are absolutely precise, clipped. You know, I was working with a wingman, a guy, and I was what was called lasing. I was doing a cooperative attack. I was lasing a target, and he would drop the weapon, and my laser energy would pick it up, and the weapon would go in on my laser energy. And so it's really important that you're working really, really closely with him as well. And again, just so professional. And afterwards, we we were called in by some Americans who had had um, an unmanned aerial vehicle. So it was called a Predator and it was above us and it had filmed the whole attack run. And we saw a guy, he, an Iraqi gentleman, and he basically had opened the door of this building that was our target. And he was sitting there and we could see on the infrared imagery, you know, literally clear as day, well, in black and white, because it's the heat, it's IR. Um, he's having a cigarette and he's having a cup of tea and he finishes his cigarette. He throws his tea on the floor and you can see this pool of white, which is the heat. He shuts the door and my weapon goes in or my, my laser energy is targeting the other side. The bomb goes in and I just went, oh my gosh, this is horrific. Because it's one thing doing the role and there's a different thing as well, the reality of war. And I'm, and I never, I'm not a war hungry person. I've no desire to kill people. That's not why I did it. You're doing it you know, to defend the nation and to, to, to basically, you know, protect people and, and, and serve the country. And in this moment, literally my heart fell. And then the door opened and he walked straight out and ran and got in his car. He obviously had his car keys in his pocket, thank God, got into his car keys while the building is now exploding behind him. And he literally drives off straight through the desert, through a fence. And you see this fence going ping, 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 and being pulled behind him the whole way. And he survived. And, and I was like, thank God. Because because that is the reality, you know, that is the reality of war. And and people often say, you know, how does that feel, though? Does that feel terrible? You're doing your job. And the, the time to debate whether that's the right or the wrong thing to do is not when you're in the air. But one thing I can be absolutely hand on heart certain about is that we've never prosecuted an attack, basically, and three was a lower level. And I mean, I would be on a target run and I was all switches were live. I was literally, my thumb was on the on the button to drop our weapon. And my navigator just said, stop, stop, stop. And there was a man with a camel and he literally would have come within the damage distance. Damage. And so we didn't drop. Now that's absolutely fine. I have no problems doing that whatsoever because our job at the time was no civilian injury. And so that's important as well to know. And that's how controlled we are. That's how disciplined you are. There's not a, a war bloodthirstiness to it where you say, I want to do this. No, do your job and you do it precisely. And that's why you're trained at the level that you're trained at. Wow. It's, it's sorry, a, that's quite a long answer. No, it's lovely. <laughs> like a, a brilliant answer. It's such a, it's a world that lots of us don't know about. And I think probably even more so in the UK, you think about places compared to like the US, for example. I like certainly from my experience, I have no insight into how our military works at all so it's yeah it's it's it gives me a new appreciation of that and it's I think it's important to hear those stories and I think we should you know it's it's important that we 
understand a little bit more about that. Yeah, because I think it's easy to say, oh, the fast jet flying, it's great fun. And I do this yeah. in my speeches. I say, oh, flying through Wales, looking at people walking, we wave at them. That is one side of it. That is the fun side. That's the raw, oh my God, I'm doing what I absolutely love to do, which is low level flying around Wales or Scotland. That's brilliant. But there's also a reality of your training, your training to do a job. And that's the reality of the job. And I think I was very lucky in many, many ways because I was in uh, the conflict that I was involved in, which was, which was Iraq, was a high level conflict. And there's a slight disassociation, I think, with the reality of what you're doing in your little environment, in your office environment, which is my cockpit, to what's happening on the ground. In Afghanistan, I know that a lot of my friends have suffered from PTSD as a consequence of being in Afghanistan because it was a very different war. And, you know, I've got great friends um, who have really, really struggled because of the sights and things that they saw whilst basically serving their country and perhaps have not received the care that they need. And, and that is getting done. I know that, you know, Johnny Mercer, who's the uh, veterans minister at the moment, is doing so much around mental health care for our veterans as well. Mm. And, and we really do need to focus on that because I think I've been very lucky, but I have lost four friends who have committed suicide, all men, all in their late 40s or early 50s, all former fast jet pilots who basically, I think, went through PTSD and it was un, undiagnosed. Oh. So, so it's a real problem. Yeah, it really is. How do you, when you're in that space, I'm, I'm assuming, I know you're trained to respond and I know like all of your training has been for that moment in time. But when there are times, there must be times where it's really stressful where you can feel like the cortisol or adrenaline in your body. How do you manage that kind of physical stress response if it's happened? Yeah, so, so again, it, it is training actually. But I, I have this mantra, which is control the controllables. And if you can't, let it go. And it was taught to me, someone talked to me earlier on in my career. And it's something I've used all the time. And it sounds so flippant to say, but I always think of this stress bucket. And we talk about a stress bucket in aviation all the time. And we have this bucket and it fills up. And how often is our bucket filling up with superfluous issues? Things that are completely outside of our control. And yet they stress us out. It could be anything from I'm going to a meeting in London and I'm stuck on a train and the train's not moving. Now I'm getting more and more stressed. I can feel the anxiety rising because I'm now, I'm going to be delivering a speech and I'm not there. Mm -hmm. So I just, at this point, I literally, I mean, I've happened loads to me recently and I sit there and I go, what can I do about this? Right, I can contact the organisers. I can look at getting off at the next station, the next available space station. Is it going to be quicker for me to get in a taxi? Is there an option of getting there in any other way? The flight's delayed. What else can I do? Can I still get in a car and get there? Could I even just pay a driver to take me up there? You know, I look at every alternative and I think by, by going into a sort of a processing mode, you say, right, I'm going to let that stress go because I can't, I can't control the fact I am going to be late. I can simply do what I can do. And I let it go and I focus on what is within my sphere of influence and therefore make that my priority. And what that does is it drives you into process following and option generation to come up with a solution rather than a panic mode. And if you do that, and if, if you can imagine, I'm taking that from the air. So um, on 9-11, we were coming back from America and we were in the middle of the Atlantic in thick cloud. We were doing what's called air-to-air -air refueling. So tanking from a big airliner, which has got loads of fuel in it. It has these baskets hanging at the back on hoses. And you extend a probe and you place it into a moving basket and you fill up in the air. And we were literally doing that when we heard that America had shut their airspace. 
And there was a sort of silence in our formation where we try and process it. We try and work out what's going on. But we had no idea what's happening. Now, it'd be very easy just to go, I don't understand it. This is a nightmare. Da, da, da. But you don't because you say, OK, well, let's think about this. America is shutting their airspace. We're hearing of aircraft being turned back, diverted. There's chaos sort of on the airwaves. No one has any understanding what's happening because no one's telling us it's a terrorist attack because no one actually sort of knew or understood or we simply knew they'd shut the airspace. And so we thought, well, what can we do? Our risk at this point is we're in thick cloud and if aircraft are being diverted and turned back and there's chaos around, we've got a risk of a mid-air collision. That's our priority. And so we started to scan the airspace using our air-to-air radars in front of us to clear our passageway through it. So that's that sort of classic example whereby you might not understand the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. But if you let all that stress build up, you, you won't have the capacity to deal with what you need to. And so that's the training that makes you very logical in your thought processes, that you don't panic in an emergency. And I've had this many, many times in car crashes where I've witnessed car crashes where I almost go into a planning mode and I've had it where my son literally cracked his head open horribly and there was blood everywhere and it was a case of okay right an ambulance won't be able to find us we need to get to an uh, right I need to find a lift someone take me to the hospital got a lift sat in the back get him into hospital got him and only afterwards when he was then sorted did I then go I feel a bit sick (laughs) because that's when the shock can hit you and you can then be stressed but in an emergency and in a crisis I think you in the military you're trained very very well to deal with it in a very calculated and, and not cold manner but a calculated manner which is wise. I love that control of the controllables. That's, you know, is there any better advice than that? I love it. Mandy, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for your sharing. It's, I know, obviously, I know you're used to talking about your story, but I'm, I'm sure it's not always easy to share so much about your life and, and your experiences. So thank you for that. And I, I hope that people listening or watching snippets or however people are hearing this conversation I hope it's helpful in some way. So I I really, really appreciate it. So thank you for joining me. Well, thank you so much, Gemma. Honestly, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you. The Mindset Matters podcast is not for profit, supporting Bloom Mental Health UK's resilience programme for young people. Each time you listen to an episode, you're helping teens and young adults benefit from getting the support they need to become more resilient. You can discover more about the Bloom programme and their impact at mental health hyphen uk.org What I loved about talking to Mandy today was her belief and commitment to a dream that technically wasn't even possible at the start of her journey. Women weren't allowed to be pilots in the RAF. How incredible is that vision? And yet, through commitment, determination, and through failure, she knew what she needed to do to succeed at achieving her dream when the opportunity arose, and she did it. For all the belief in the world and all the experience and confidence you gain won't stop imposter syndrome. When you're knocked back or told no time and time again, it can be really hard to feel like you're legitimately capable of doing something that technically you're an expert at. The fear of failure is real, and what's more, it makes you human. So what can we learn from Mandy today? And how can we manage those situations when, in spite of having all that self-belief and expertise, we feel uneasy? Well, firstly, embrace imposter syndrome. 
Yes, that's right, embrace it. Like all stress, a little bit can actually be good for you. It can be used as a motivator to keep you moving forward. But don't let it consume you or stop you doing what you want or need to do. Next, control the controllables. And if you can't, let it go. I loved that advice from Mandy. Don't let hypothetical worries or doubts cloud the facts in a situation. And finally, if you can't sit with the idea that you're capable, put yourself in the mindset of someone who can. It works for Mandy and Beyonce, AKA Sasha Fierce. So why not try it for yourself too? Thank you for joining me, Mandy. It has been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for listening to the Mindset Matters podcast.